Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's good, everyone? Welcome back to another episode. Um, I know I just said welcome back, but actually I have a feeling this episode is probably going to attract a few first-time listeners. If you're one of those listeners, then thank you very much for joining me. I am your host, Aaron Fifield. So my guest on this episode is Jimmy Sony. Jimmy, along with his co-author, Rob Goodman, recently wrote the biography of Claude Shannon, which is titled A Mind at Play, How Claude Shannon Invented the Information Age. Shannon was a brilliant mind, plain and simple. He was born in 1916 and he passed away in 2001. He was a mathematician, a scientist, an inventor, and also a stock market investor. Although he's widely unknown by the general public, Shannon is responsible for coming up with what's known as information theory. This is a way of measuring information which stands behind much of the technology we use all day, every day. You may recall Shannon's name has come up on a previous episode, and that was the episode with Edward Thorpe, because Thorpe and Shannon together beat roulette after inventing the world's first wearable computer. I promise you this could easily become a very long intro by taking you through Shannon's long list of achievements, discoveries and inventions which do range from artificial intelligence to cryptography to fire-breathing trumpets and chess plane machines. But instead, keep listening and enjoy a few surprises along the way. I will say you're unlikely to get any trading tactics as such from this episode, even though we do discuss Shannon's investments, but what you will get is perhaps some inspiration for how to become more curious and explore new ideas. Now let's hear from the man who spent literally thousands of hours researching the playful mind of one of the foremost intellects of the 20th century, Claude Shannon. Here is Jimmy Sony. So what's the general response been like for the book? Pretty good? 
Oh, it's been great. You know, it, I think it, just a couple things. One is I don't think Rob and I, because we're not engineers or mathematicians, I don't think we fully understood how much of an appetite there was for his story. You know, I, I think both of us came at this from very different backgrounds. And so we didn't realize that there was a whole community of people, including computer scientists who see him as this kind of legendary figure. I mean, we knew he was important, but we did, I don't think we understood just how much enthusiasm there would be for his story. So that's been great. The press has been great. I and mean, we've got a review in the Wall Street Journal, a review in Nature, uh, Fortune Magazine reviewed it, um, both online and in print. So it's been, it's been pretty great, man. I mean, uh, you know, it's been exciting to have, cause you put so much time into these things, you know, and one of the, seeing one of these take off is really, really great. Very nice, man. Oh, you must be stoked. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. I think I read somewhere that you'd been working on this for close to five years. Did I read that correctly? Five years. And honestly, it might even be a little bit longer than that, but just for conservative estimate is it's five years. The truth is like, it just takes that long in part just to kind of understand the stuff that he did. And then you've got to add to that sort of making it relevant for readers, uh, digging through a lot of archival information. We tracked down all of the family members that we could find. Um, we tracked down, you know, an ex-girlfriend, ex-wife, a lot of friends. And so it just, that interviewing that time took a, took a while. Yeah, I can imagine. So what were you doing prior to writing the book? Like, what is your background? So, yeah. So my background is, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of everything, but um, I kind of started my career in consulting uh, and ended up becoming an author. And, and in between, I've had the chance to do everything from media to politics to speech writing to ghost writing. And, you know, I think like a lot of people, I always sort of grew up, I was just a real bookworm and um, always wanted the chance to write books and to kind of like if, if I'm in someone's house and there's a bookshelf, I sort of forget that there are other people in the room and I kind of gravitate to the bookshelf <laughs> and I kind of cock my head to the side and see what people are reading. And then, you know, I make, make judgments about them. Uh, and, <laughs> and so, so for me, I mean, books are sort of like this, uh, I think, I think about books the way that other people probably think about sort of like baseball or, or football or like sports they're into. Like I, I get into like, you know, individual authors and I learn everything I can about them and then I buy all their books. And, and so, um, I feel really privileged to have the chance to, to write books and, uh, it's a lot of work and financially it may not be the most, uh, sensible thing to do in a way, but, uh, it works for me. And I think if you're lucky enough to do it, you should, uh, you should take the chance to do it. Yeah. So why did you feel compelled to write this, this book on Claude Shannon? Yeah, it's a great, great question. Um, so I read a book called The Idea Factory by John Gertner. And for your listeners who are interested in uh, how innovation works and how innovative organizations work, uh, I would really recommend that, you know, in addition to picking up the Claude Shannon biography, uh, which is a story of how an innovative mind works, I'd really recommend that they pick up this book, The Idea Factory, um, because it's the story of a company called Bell Labs, uh, Bell Laboratories, which if you can imagine tomorrow, Google, Apple, and Facebook decide that they're announcing a merger uh, and that they're going to become one super company, um, that is roughly 
how I like to think about where Bell Labs was in the 20th century for Americans, um, because it was the it was the second largest employer in the United States uh, behind the behind you know the federal government. Uh, it ran the phone system of the United States, so it had essentially a federally guaranteed monopoly, uh, and it it was a huge warehouse of innovation. They developed. Um, God, laser, the laser, uh, touch tone dialing, long distance phone calls, synchronized the sounds and images in movies. Um, they took home six Nobel prizes, invented the transistor. So, I mean, so much of modern life was built at Bell Laboratories. And I was reading this book and it's all about how that company kind of came to be. And one of the figures in the book, uh, is Claude Shannon. So I went on Amazon looking for a biography and I, I just, I was sort of naive. I just assumed like, given how important he was, surely there was a biography available. And it turned out nothing came up. There were some books about him, uh, actually a really fantastic book called uh, the, the Information by James Glick, which is, in, it's an imposing read, but it's a really good read, but it's about the kind of development and um, sort of cultivation, uh, sorry, development of, of the ideas of information and how information has progressed through history. And Shannon's a central figure in that book, but it's not a strict biography, so it doesn't go end to end. And I just kept, like, it's one of those ideas, Aaron, I'm sure you have these ideas is where like you'll think of something and then it just like stays with you and you wake up and you're thinking about it and you go to bed and you're thinking about it and like you just walk around with this thing for weeks and for weeks all I thought I could think of was you know it really is it it's really disappointing that someone so impressive uh doesn't have a biography of him and I think when I was gifted the book by my by a friend of mine um, he actually kind of casually threw in the suggestion. He was like, you should really look at this Claude Shannon guy as your next biography. I think that's what led me to look on Amazon. Um, but again, I assumed that somebody had already done it. When I found out no one did, I went to Rob, who I'd been co-writing with for a while. We were both uh, old friends from Duke and uh, he's a, he's a, we're debate partners and then wrote a different book together and worked on things together. And Rob and I together approached Simon & Schuster with, through the help of our agent. And um, we were fortunate enough, and I'm sorry if the story is going on a bit, but I think people like to know how books are come to come to be. Um, so cut me off if, I, if I'm- No, you're totally fine. Keep going, man. So, so basically what happened is our agent took us to a meeting with a woman named Alice Mayhew. And um, that name isn't, isn't a famous name, but she's then the editor behind books like A Beautiful Mind, which became the movie with Russell Crowe. Uh, she's the editor behind Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson uh, and all of Walter Isaacson's other books. Uh, David Brooks, uh, she's his editor. She's, you know, the editor to the stars. But Jimmy Carter had a book out and, and she was the editor. Uh, I think she once bumped me on a phone call to because she needed to speak to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I was like, okay, I'm, yeah, totally. You can bump me for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a Supreme Court justice. I feel fine, you know. Uh, and so, so we sat down with her and I, I, we sort of made the pitch that this was a book that was going to be a lot like A Beautiful Mind. And if for people who haven't read that book, what's wonderful about it is um, in the movie, you sort of, you know, the heavy emphasis is on the dementia and on the story of John Nash's decline. And it's an extraordinary, you know, story. In the book, the author, Sylvia Nasser, does a really wonderful job of not just going into the dementia and the decline of this Nobel Prize winning mathematician and, and, um, and, and mind, but she goes into what made his ideas about game theory so revolutionary. And so our contention was that this book, uh, the Claude Shannon biography, would be about the man 
but it would also be about the ideas. How did information theory come to pass? How did Claude Shannon think about early efforts at artificial intelligence? What did he think about the stock market? Uh, what did he think about money? Uh, how did how did someone like this live his life, basically? But then also kind of intellectually, how did he think? So that was the idea. And Simon and Schuster seemed to, you know, they wanted to take a chance on it. Um, Walter Isaacson had actually written about Claude Shannon in a different book called The Innovators. And so our editor had some familiarity with the topic. And then after we signed the paperwork, we were off to the races. <laughs> right. So why do you think someone had not written his biography sooner? Yeah, it's a, it's a, that's a really, really good question. Uh, and it's one that I kind of still wonder about because if you were looking at the people who are most qualified to do this, I'm probably, Rob and I are probably last on the list, right? The last math class either of us took was in high school. Um, and we're not engineers. Uh, I think there are a few reasons. The first is, you know, Shannon himself didn't chase fame. So he, he didn't really want to be famous. Uh, and a lot of people can say that, like, it's really easy to sit back and say, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't want all that trouble. Um, Shannon was actually, you know, famous for in the 1950s. Uh, so he was profiled in Vogue magazine. Uh, some of his work was included in Time magazine. He was on TV. He traveled around the country giving talks. So he had his moment in the kind of mid 1950s where he became a celebrity celebrity scientist. And this is in the post-war period. So scientists as a kind of collective, you know, they, they, people have a different view of scientists after the war and after uh, the bomb, the development of the bomb and after the development of a lot of technology that, that, you know, people thought helped to contribute to the war effort. And so he is this celebrity scientist like Richard Feynman or Albert Einstein, and people are starting to know who he is. And it's right at this time that he just kind of walks off the stage and uh, decides not to become become famous. And it's a pretty powerful moment, um, particularly in like our culture, because if you think about like everyone's trying to become a YouTube overnight YouTube star or Instagram celebrity or whatever. Um, but Shannon just decides that it's not for him. He's not going to, to do those things. Um, requests keep coming, but he just kind of steadily ignores requests to do various things. He like isn't too keen to speak to journalists. He you know doesn't give all the talks that he's invited to. Um, that's one reason he didn't want to be famous. The second reason is in a way you, in order to write a biography, one kind of biography, you need to have a lot of drama in someone's life, right? Like it, it helps. Actually, I shouldn't say that it helps to have a lot of drama. Um, you, it's why so many biographies are written about politicians or about generals or, or, you know, they, they've, they've got a lot of activity that you can, you can point to, you can create a story out of it. In Shannon's life, there, there are some moments that are difficult and some moments that are complicated. But for the most part, the drama in his life is, is embedded within the discovery of these ideas. And so you have to really want to dive into those ideas and kind of explain how he thought and came up with things in order to tell the story. Um, and so that, that's part of it is I think you, Shannon can be a bit of an intimidating figure. And then, and then the last reason is just honestly a, a kind of, a kind of practical one, which is, uh, the Venn diagram, I think, of people who, know about Claude Shannon on the sort of one circle and who write books <laughs> and biographies, uh, that's a, that's a thin area in the middle there. Right. Um, and so you, you kind of have to, you have to want to dive into a field, fields like mathematics and engineering. And a lot of the people who write biographies 
either aren't going to do that or aren't willing to do that or just are sort of intimidated by it. And so you have to, it just, it's sort of almost like, you know, the, the sort of opposite would be like, there's a reason there's a reason that there's a lot of writers who write about politics and subsequently there's a lot of political biographies. It's, it's terrain they're familiar with, right? But writing a biography of a mathematician or an engineer, it's a little bit difficult, difficult terrain. That's the other reason I think there's not a, there wasn't a biography at the time. Yeah. I mean, that totally makes sense. And, and what were some of the challenges for you and actually putting together this biography? Because like you said earlier, you know, you, you don't come from a background in mathematics or science or anything in that field. What were some of the challenges for you in actually putting this book together? Because, you know, some of the ideas and some of the, the research that Claude Shannon's responsible for are, are fairly complex type of things. Yeah. I mean, I look, I could, I could talk your ear off about the, the challenges. I'm, I'm, I'll go into a couple of them just to spare your, your listeners, the, the, the grief and the heartache that we went through. But, um, I would say a couple things. One is it is, it is really difficult to kind of get someone's personality on paper. Um, you know, I mean, I think like, like I, I'm trying to think about this, describing this in a way that makes sense. It's, it's hard to even describe with, with a ton of accuracy, like your best friend, right? Like you could, you could write about your best friend and what shows up on the page, you know, like might be a good approximation, but there are probably things you're going to miss or, or little biases that you have, things like that. And so just becoming kind of literate in anyone's life is a hard thing. So I would say sort of the, the, the challenge from the beginning is like kind of developing literacy enough in someone else's life to write about it and make sure that it's accurate, right? That's sort of challenge number one. Uh, challenge number two is he is a brilliant guy. Um, I mean, this was somebody who, as we learned more about him, every time we peeled another layer of the onion and we thought we had gotten down and finished it, we'd find some other thing that he was involved in or some other fact that came up. I can give you the best example of this. We were in the final proofing pages of the book, like the book's about to be sent off to the publisher. And we discovered uh, a plan for his funeral that he had written. It was a kind of like tongue in cheek plan that he had written for his funeral. And it, it was like sort of, he didn't want his funeral to be a sad occasion. He wanted it to be like the Macy's day parade. And he had actually imagined what the parade would look like. And so, so you discover this like at the 11th hour of writing the book and you're like, well, I can't write a biography and not include the plan that he had for the funeral that he wanted, even though it was a sort of ridiculous over the top joke. Um, and so every stage of the biography, we learn more about the things that interested him. This was somebody who built the, a chess playing computer uh, decades before Deep Blue ever beat Gary Kasparov. Uh, he built a computer that could play the last six moves in a game of chess. He built a machine to solve Rubik's Cubes. Um, he gave famous lectures at MIT, and I'm sure we'll get into it a bit, about stock picking and about stocks in general. Uh, he was early and an early investor in several Silicon Valley companies. And when Silicon Valley was just, you know, uh, not what it is today, 
Um, in addition to uh, the obvious, you know, invention of information theory, which is now a field with thousands of people who write papers and there's conferences and all the rest. Um, so he was somebody who was so multifaceted that you almost like didn't know what direction to go in in some ways. Like one of the challenges of the biography is we could have written it at 800 pages, but it was going to be compelling. It was going to be hard enough to get people to read it at 300 and whatever pages, 375 pages. And so taking all of that and finding ways to kind of pare it down was one of the other challenges. And then the final thing I would say is, you know, we had to spend um, about three years convincing his family that we weren't crazy and that we weren't uh, going to ruin their dad's legacy and that we weren't kind of imposters. Um, it, it took a really long time to get the family to warm up to us because this was a family that like their father didn't want fame, didn't search it out, didn't trade on the family name. Uh, and so they were very skeptical and they'd been, I think, burned in the past by some people who had been written writing some things that weren't a hundred percent accurate. And so it took a lot of engaging and gentle emails and, Hey, we found this, uh, think you'd be, think you'd, you'd really cool. Like you may not have seen this about your dad before that took about three years of just patient calls and emails and messages and communicating. And so that's the, the last part was sort of getting the family on board. But honestly, Aaron, we could, the second half of the book we couldn't have written without the family's participation. So it was so important to, to play that kind of long game with it. Now, you've made an interesting point about how Claude Shannon wasn't someone who was chasing fame. Of course, he was very deserving of fame considering his uh, achievements and the things he had discovered and invented, etc. Why was he not looking for the spotlight like why did he why did he shy away from it i guess is a better way of asking the question yeah no it's a, it's a really good question so a couple of things one is uh claude shannon was one of these people who basically never did anything that he didn't want to do um, there was a there was a brief period in his life where he had to do some things, get his PhD, his master's, he had to work for Bell Labs and do some cryptographic analysis. And after he is, his information theory paper, once he sort of established as like a scientific, brilliant person, uh, he basically just pursues whatever he wants to pursue. And what I mean by that isn't that he got lazy. It's that he would go where his mind led him he didn't have to go where the money led him or where fame led him. It just wasn't, A, it wasn't a motivator, but B, he just didn't need it. Um, he could kind of do what he wanted. And so he was, he was privileged in a sense. Uh, obviously the privilege came as a result of very hard work on information theory. Um, but he was, he was privileged to be able to basically do whatever he wanted to do. And what he wanted to do was pursue puzzles. It was to build things. It was to, to write new mathematics. It was to take the field that he developed and bring it to maturity. Um, he had private interests that just occupied him. And the idea of giving paid lectures or of going on TV to talk about things just did not fit in that, that schema, right? Um, and so what's interesting is this is somebody who I think for most of us, if we had the opportunity to, to, you know, be on TV and to be in magazines and all the rest, we would run to that opportunity because uh, it would help us do all of these other things that we wanted to do, right? There's a sort of instrumental quality. Like you can, you can use all of that to do these other things. For Claude Shannon, 
those things were an interference with the stuff that he actually wanted to do. Um, in his house later in life, he builds a two-story workshop and journalists dubbed it the toy room. His kids don't really like that. They called it dad's room. And if you can imagine a two-story workshop where this kind of brilliant mind comes in and, and just builds and compiles things and, and is, you know, soldering things and, you know, just constructing crazy contraptions. He, he built a trumpet that could breathe fire, just to give you an example. <laughs> so when you played it, fire would shoot out of the bell of the trumpet. Um, and it, there's no real, there's no reason for this. There's no great, you know, innovation award or anything. It was just what he wanted to do. And so he had this, this space and he, I think he was at his happiest um, in that room building contraptions and making things and puzzling over things that he thought about. Uh, I don't think even in the interviews of journalists later, he's pretty snarky. Like he'll, he'll, somebody at once asked him, they say, did you ever find fame to be a burden? And he responds, well, the only burden is having people like you come and having to talk to people like you. Uh, and he's sort of doing it with a smile, but he's kind of, there's a little bit of snark there because he's saying that like he has zero interest in, you know, kind of engaging in this way. Um, and I, and I think that was it. I think uh, to, the, the long answer to your question is he just didn't see the value in it and he didn't want to do it. And he was the kind of person who had earned the right to do and to study and to focus on the things that he wanted to do, which were, you know, math and artificial intelligence, computing, um, additional theoretical work, uh, engaging with people who are kind of at the intersection of all of those fields. That's where his, his interests were. Yeah. You know, the little bits I've read about Claude Shannon, I kind of got that impression. I kind of got that vibe that he was someone who really just did whatever he really wanted to do. You know, if he lost interest in something, he'd just push that aside and, and move on to the next thing, which uh, was of interest to him. I, I really kind of got that sense. It's, it's actually one of the, I think, the most powerful parts, uh, powerful lessons I took from studying his life, uh, which is it's okay to dabble. Um, he was a famous dabbler. I mean, he tried everything. He was a jazz clarinetist. Um, you know, he built machines, played chess at a very high level, uh, went to Vegas with a wearable computer he built to try to beat the roulette tables. Um, he, you know, obviously did a ton of work on, on math. He gave speeches about early computing. He was involved in artificial. I mean, I could go on and on. The point is he did not think that everything that he did had some kind of end specific end goal or end result. He was a dabbler. He would take, pick things up, get interested in them for a little while, finish them. And by the way, finish them to usually an, an obscenely high degree. And then all of a sudden just shift his interest to something else. And so I think there's something to be said for that kind of mind, that kind of engagement, just because I, I think that a lot of us feel pressure to really specialize and to get really good at one thing. Shannon's a useful reminder that uh, dabbling's okay and that you can actually learn a lot by, uh, by becoming a kind of... Uh, by just becoming broadly curious. Um, one of the things that Shannon, did, you know, he was interested in poetry. He was interested in philosophy. So I, I do think that there's something, you're absolutely right to nail that part of his character. He, he was somebody who picked things up and set them aside just based on his satisfaction. I think there's actually a lot of value in that for people who are doing anything, whether it's, you know, trading stocks or, uh, you know, driving, you know, driving trucks. I think you, you, you have, there's value in that kind of generalist thinking. Mm. And I guess that's one of the reasons why you appropriately titled the book, A Mind at Play. 
<laughs> That's right. You know, and part, part of it too is, um, he was playful. I mean, the guy had a lot of fun. There's this great moment. <laughs> he is, he has a really good time sort of poking fun at serious institutions. So one of the things he does is, uh, he gets all these like, uh, honorary degrees from universities. So he'll get like, you know, the hood and the, the whatever. And, um, and for most people, like an honorary degree is a really big deal and they kind of they can get it framed or put it up on their, their, but they'll get the hood and the thing framed or whatever. And, um, you know, and they treat these things as really as a, as a significant moment in life. And Shannon, he, he saw their significance and he was respectful, but he won so many of them that he built a sort of like one of these rotating tie racks. Um, and the honorary degrees were just, the hoods were just placed on a rotating tie rack. And when he would push a button, the tie rack would just rotate. So he'd be able to see all of them. Um, <laughs> he got an award from the American Philosophical Society once and the award, and it was just an uh, invitation to join the society. And the society was started by Ben Franklin. So it goes back a couple hundred years. And, um, and it's for famous thinkers and scientists and that. And uh, they sent him a, an invitation and the invitation was what he could tell was it was a facsimile of calligraphy. So it wasn't real calligraphy. It was like somebody had you know copied it or done it from a computer. And uh, so he hired an actual calligrapher to write back his letter of acceptance <laughs> just, just as a joke. And actually the American Philosophical Society still has his hand calligraphed acceptance of their fake calligraphed invitation. Um, so he had all these moments where he was just very playful and joking. He gets a fellowship to go to Oxford and um, the only, the only remaining, uh, record from that period is that he's so upset as an American to have to drive on the wrong side of the road that he writes a 3000 word paper where he designs a system of mirrors and levers so that if you sat in the car, the British car and you drove down the right, the, the left side of the road, it would feel like you were on the right side of the road. Uh, and this was like a, an elaborate paper with diagrams and math and all the rest but this is what he spent his time thinking about. He was very playful and it, I hope it comes across in the, in the book, but I, I think there's something to learn from that too. Cause he was one of these people who, you know, we tend to think of geniuses as these like tortured, dark figures. Um, and, uh, Shannon was almost the exact opposite. He was much more, uh, Richard Feynman than John Nash. Okay. And saying that though, were there some moments in his life where things were a little bit dark? I'm not sure why, but I feel like I've, I mean, I've read Fortune's Formula, which I know speaks about Shannon quite a bit. And I don't know if I, maybe I'm getting him confused with someone else, but were there some periods in his life where things, where he was a little bit unhappy? Oh, yeah. Um, there was a pretty deep, deeply dark episode, a couple of them, uh, but but really centered around his, his 20s. So, you know, I just was set to set the scene a bit. He has graduated from MIT uh, with his PhD. He wins a fellowship to go to Princeton's Institute for Advanced Study. And he has just he's just gotten married and his marriage is on the rocks. Um, he and his, his you know, later ex-wife uh, just they don't have a lot in common. She's very social and gregarious and she's interested in politics. And he's not so into that. That's not his thing. Um, and he's he's kind of morose and he kind of he, she thinks he's depressed. A couple of other people have indicated that he might have been depressed. The So that's happening. His marriage is on the rocks. He doesn't quite know what he wants to do professionally. So he's sort of struggling with that, like mid 20s anxiety of like, well, how you're going to spend your life. And then the last thing, and probably the, the thing that, um, 
most affected him is the war, World War II is underway. The American involvement in World War II is underway. And the draft is about to be announced. Uh, and then once it is announced, this is a huge source of anxiety for men of his generation. It's a particular source of anxiety for Claude Shannon because he does not want to join the military. Um, he, he knows he's frail. Uh, he doesn't think he's fit for combat. He also knows he's a loner, so he doesn't think he's fit for kind of the close quarters of army life. And so all of these things combined to, to kind of, uh, to really put him down in the dumps, um, in a, in a pretty serious way that people kind of still remember those who were around then still remember to this day. And it's, it's the period that, um, that he, where we would say if Shannon, Shannon had was sort of one great challenge among the great challenges in his life, that was certainly kind of the, the greatest challenge was that moment right then and there. Um, he, is able so his marriage ends unfortunately he but he is able to secure some funding from uh the national defense uh research council um the nrdc and he is able to go to bell laboratories to work on research for the war uh so bell labs is subcontracted by the government to do a lot of research for the war on a lot of different topics and he's one of the folks who manages to win a research grant. So it kind of gets him out of where he is into Bell Labs. He manages to avoid the draft and that kind of gets him out of that period of his life. There's still some bumpy things that happen in New York. Um, you know, he, he has some, some different things happen over time, over time, but there's that period is probably the darkest period in his life. And it's not just him. I mean, it was an entire generation of men who faced the pressure of the war and, and had to, had to contend with it in different ways. And for Shannon, he was really fortunate in being able to get that, that time. Right. Okay. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U S markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, let's, I think what might be interesting is if we hear a little bit about where Claude Shannon actually came from and like, what was life like for him growing up? Where did he come from? 
Yeah, so he was born in a town uh, called Petoskey, Michigan, uh, in uh, in sort of the upper part of Michigan. Uh, he grows up primarily in a town called Gaylord, Michigan, and uh, Gaylord is a is a kind of classic small town. I mean, it's I think at, at its biggest when Claude Shannon is young is like three thousand people. Um, just to give your your listeners a sense of of kind of how small and what time when an electric light when the first electric light is installed on a sign in Gaylord, it, it becomes front page news and like the town comes out to celebrate. When we were looking at the papers from that era, the Shannons, Shannon's parents' wedding makes the front page, uh, and they weren't, you know, that is, is this parents were important in the town, but not not important enough, you know. It just it goes to show how small this town was that that his parents' wedding makes front page news. Other headlines were things like um, "woman kills wolf with mop stick." Uh, you know, <laughs> there, there's there's things like that that pepper the papers from that period. So so he grows up in this town, Gaylord, and he is. Um, He's the son uh, of Claude Elwood Shannon Sr. Uh, and Mabel Wolf. Mabel is, uh, is, is the is second wife of uh, Claude's dad. Um, and we don't know the circumstances around his first marriage, but uh, he was older when Shannon was born. And so he remains a kind of distant figure in Shannon's life. He's not super engaged with his son's life. Um, even later, Shannon didn't really have much to, to say about him. Um, his dad is one of these people in one of these small towns who does a little bit of everything. He's kind of, he's the undertaker. He's a lawyer. He's a judge. He sort of participates in all aspects of life. Uh, and he, you know, uh, he, he's most famous for his time kind of serving as a judge. It's where he earns a name, Judge Shannon. His, Claude Shannon's mom is a teacher um, and she's a sort of musician, a kind of musician locally. And, um, he lives a fairly standard life. I mean, I think in a lot of lives of geniuses, you sort of see these overbearing parents or like dads who are convinced that they're going to turn their kids into geniuses. You see this with like, you know, Beethoven or with John Stuart Mill. Um, Shannon's life is really ordinary. Uh, he, he, we sort of joke. It's like what you would call now like free range parenting. His parents kind of let him do whatever he would like to do. So he goes and he builds radios. He tinkers. He, he builds a, a barn elevator with a friend in their backyard that, that works. Uh, and they both live to tell about it. He's in the Boy Scouts and he, he does things like that. Um, and so he's got this life that's very rich and varied. He's good at school. Um, he definitely shows some acumen for some things. It sounds like from what we can gather that the reason he became interested in mathematics is partly because um, his sister was interested in mathematics. And so she he sort of has this little bit of like sibling rivalry and it leads him into math. And he has this very ordinary childhood. The, the couple things that are a little bit uh, extraordinary about it. One is um, he, at a very early age, becomes interested in codes and kind of cryptographic analysis. Um, so he's he's like always playing with codes. There's a famous Edgar Allan Poe story called The Gold Bug. And that becomes Claude Shannon's favorite story as a boy. Uh, it's the only Edgar Allan Poe story with this gigantic code that's supposed to help unlock a treasure uh, within the story. And, and, you know, I think it's fitting that it becomes Claude Shannon. Shannon's favorite story. So he's got that interest. And then, and then he's also, um, he manages to find his way to the university of Michigan. So that's the second kind of important thing from his childhood. So he applies to the university of Michigan. It's, it's really quaint. I mean, the application is, is, uh, I think three pages fill in the blank. Um, and he makes some spelling errors and he just crosses out the spelling errors. Uh, it's not nearly as stressful as applying for colleges today. The reason it's important that he ends up there is because the engineering school at the University of Michigan has exploded uh, in the kind of 10 years prior to his getting there. And so he's arriving at a time when the engineering school is big and growing and powerful. And so he's exposed to a lot of very cutting edge engineering research as a result. 
And it's probably the kind of second kind of consequential thing in his life, at least uh, his, his early life. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I found really incredible about his his childhood was even the things he was inventing and creating at such a young age. Like, um, there's uh, I've read in a couple places that he uh, he built some sort of wireless telegraph system between his house and his his friend's house, which wasn't overly close uh, either. Um, like, like how did he have the know how? to create these sort of things? Like, was he just a smart mind from the get-go? <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's a great question. Um, and I'll be honest that I think even after writing his biography, you know, I think these are kinds of the kinds of questions that you can sort of speculate at, but not necessarily pin down for sure. Um, I would I would offer a couple things. One is he did always have a gift for building and making things. So even as a boy, the, the network you're describing is this kind of barbed wire network that connects a friend's house, which is about a half mile away to his house. And that doesn't like seem all that remarkable to us. Cause like I pick up my iPhone and text my friends. Right. But we, this is the early 1900s. And so you're talking about a time when, you know, this kind of technology is, is farmers use it to communicate with each other. But then you have this boy who builds this network and is able to communicate with his buddy, um, at a time when the phone system is still relatively immature in the United States and, you know, uh, that not everybody has a phone. And so it's, it's sort of, yes, in a way he had the kind of sense to do this. The other thing is like he came of age in a town the thing that the Gaylord is famous for is making things. So they're, they're like a lumber town. They become, uh, the, they, they, they become at the intersection of some major railroads because there's a lot of wood that's in the area and it's being harvested. Um, and so Gaylord, it's a very practical, hard headed Midwestern town. People build things. They, they make sleighs and they, they, they make 10 pins and they make all these things. Um, and so you're sort of thinking, contrast that, for example, with like a more cosmopolitan upbringing in New York or in Boston, even in that era. And Shannon would have turned out to be a very different person because he wouldn't have built things, right? He would have, he would have been riding the early subway and he would have been, you know, seeing people go into offices, but his dad is a furniture maker. So one of the things that we found was actually the ads that his dad took out in the local paper that were furniture ads for, you know, for a variety of things. Um, and so his dad is, is, is making things. Shannon has a grandfather who's actually an inventor as well, who has a patent for an early washing machine. So this is in the, it's in the gene pool. Uh, it turns out later that Shannon discovers he's a distant relative of Thomas Edison. Um, so he's, he's actually got the sort of like inspiration from, from that family connection. Um, but, but I think more precisely, it's that he grows up in a town where you just, if you needed something, you made it, you didn't buy it. And, you know, I, it's a spirit I would love to recapture. I just, don't have any sense of how I'm going to do that. Cause right now, if I take apart my iPhone, you know, I'll violate Apple's terms of service. So it's not, it's not like it's something we can all, all redo, but, but for Shannon, that, that was a part of how he grew up and you combined it. I, I imagine with some natural intelligence, which he obviously had, uh, and then some training in, in places like the university of Michigan and later MIT and, and Princeton. And I think it creates the kind of, of mind that, that does that. But I do think that 
uh, growing up in that kind of small town, making the kinds of things he did, playing with broken radios and having to figure them out, building networks to communicate with your friends. All of this was a big part of why he became the person he became. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Like, you've got to remember that this was in the early 1900s. Like, he was born, was it 1913? 1916. 1916, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, if we want to know how to do something now, it's as simple as pulling up your browser and typing it into the search box, where back then, I mean, you know, it was just an entirely different world. Well, and if you think about it, like one of the inventions that most struck us was that he and his this friend Rodney, one of his best friends growing up was this guy named Rodney, and he and Rodney, there was a barn in the back of Rodney's house, and they built an elevator right? These are kids. And like, if someone, I'm an adult. And if somebody asked me to build an elevator today, I would not know where to start. I'd have to go to Google. And even then, even with Google, I wouldn't trust any elevator that right. I built, right? <laughs> like it just wouldn't, that wouldn't turn out well for anyone. <laughs> um, he builds an elevator and it works. And, and we know it works because later Rodney's sister, a decades later in the 1980s, she gives an interview where she talks about how she took the ride on the elevator, uh, and, um, lives to tell about it and tells his paper about it. But he's, he's in this kind of community and it's a really practical Midwestern small town community. So one of the breakthrough discoveries or, uh, things which those who know Claude Shannon best know him for is coming up with the information theory. Do you just want to start this off by by telling us what is information theory? I know it can be a very complex subject, but is there a way you can explain it in somewhat simple terms? Absolutely. Um, or at least I'll, I'll do my best with it. The, the basic idea is until Claude Shannon, people thought that there was nothing in common between, let's say, a, a telegraph signal, a telephone signal, a tweet, uh, and this call that we're having, that they had no properties in common, right? Shannon shows, one thing he shows is actually all kinds of communication are reducible to the same basic things. So he provides a, a framework that's that's six boxes. People can then look it up online, uh, thanks to Shannon. Uh, but it's six boxes and, and it sort of shows you how a message gets from, from point A to point B and that all messages, regardless of the length, the medium, the kind of message, what you're saying, how you're saying it, they're all reducible to these same essential ingredients. So that's kind of essential insight number one. Essential insight number two is... Um, you can, once you can do that, you can encode or quantify, you can quantify messages. So he invents the bit. Um, actually, the bit has a great origin story. It was, he was going to refer to it as the binary digit, but he's trading ideas with people at the lunch table at Bell Labs. And they're like, well, binary digits, two words, it's too long. You should take them and combine them and make them into bit. Uh, so he comes up with bits. Um, that's the the met the measure of information uh, can be credited to Claude Shannon. So the thing about that is like, it doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but there was no way to measure information prior to this. There were attempts and he was, he had worked uh, with a couple of people who had, who had tried to come up with a kind of quantification for information. But Claude Shannon is, is the, the one who sort of lays it down in its clearest form and says, this is how you measure information. The final sort of set of things that he comes around. And again, this paper is very dense. And like you said, we could go on for a while is once you can measure something, you can encode it and you can compress it. So 
the fact that you can watch a YouTube video and it doesn't take a couple weeks to load uh, is because of compression. Uh, and the idea of compression algorithms, of being able to take out pieces of things to be able to compress something down to its essential size, that is credited to Claude Shannon. And so one of the things that, for example, he shows is that in a basic sentence, if you took out the vowels from most of the words, most people would have not too much difficulty interpreting what you said, right? So like if you were to write a sentence out, take out the vowels, for the most part, people will be able to read a sentence and sort of stumble their way through it. Well, what he's showing there is that a lot of language is redundant, that there's redundancy in language. And if you pull out the redundancies, you can do two things. One is you can make a message smaller so you can com compress information. But the other is that you can actually encode information to make sure that when you send a message from point A to point B, that you can repeat certain letters or certain statements to make sure that it gets there accurately. So Claude Shannon and the theory of information is basically the science of how do you quantify information, how do you encode information, and how do you compress information. Now, was this something Shannon came up with deliberately? Like, did he set out to research this sort of thing, or did he kind of discover it through a spinoff of something else? Like, what inspired him to, to look into this? Right. So, um, it's, it's a long process, uh, and it's worth getting into it a little bit because I think it's actually kind of inspiring for those of us who, who work on, on nights and weekends because this is a nights and weekends project. So in the late 1930s, it's the first record we have. He sends a note to his graduate school advisor where he basically tells him, I've been thinking about some of the fundamental properties across all messages and all kinds of communications, right? And the reason that it, that he can even say a statement like that is because from boyhood until that time, he has played around with barbed wire networks. He has, you know, studied engineering at the University of Michigan. He has worked on cryptography and code breaking for the U.S. war effort at Bell Labs. Uh, he's worked at the phone company. Uh, so he's seen how those messages travel. So he's been exposed to all these different kinds of messages and forms of communication. And he starts to see that there are these ingredients that are common to all of them, right? So that's, that basically percolates from 1939, 1938 until 1948. So roughly a period of 10 years. And what he does when he's not working at Bell Labs during the latter part of that time is he's writing this paper uh, and he's working away at it as best as we can tell. He's basically working at away on the side. And then in 1948, he publishes it in the academic journal that Bell Labs runs called the Bell Systems Technical Journal. Uh, and just a, a brief aside, it's sort of extraordinary that this like private sector company runs this academic journal where they publish these sorts of papers. Um, you know, I mean, we, it's a kind of amazing thing. But he publishes this 77 page paper. And as, as someone put it, it came like a bomb. Um, because he hadn't discussed it with anyone. He had not talked about it. He hadn't, he had sort of made passing references to things, but it wasn't the kind of paper that he was bouncing off a lot of people, publishing early versions, et cetera. He had sort of dropped it like a bomb and it invented an entire field and solved most of that field's central questions, at least the kind of broad outlines of those questions. And so, 
you have a situation in which, you know, this kind of comes out of nowhere, but it's really been in his head and been working. He's been working over it for, for 10 years. And it, there's a lot baked into it. It's, it's studies in linguistics and it's studies in mathematics and it's studies in engineering. And it's, you know, he was a jazz musician. So there's probably even some, some elements of that in there. Um, so all of this is baked into that paper and that's how it comes to be. And when it lands, people know Almost, almost immediately, they know this is something significant, and then papers start to be derived from it, which is really important in academic circles. So people use it as a jumping-off point for their own work, and then over the next, I would say, five years, it kind of it, the most important moment actually is a year later when he initially publishes the paper and he titles it "A A Mathematical Theory of Communication," just a mathematical theory. By the next, by the following year, it's referred to as the mathematical theory of communication. Uh, so people recognize that it's it's definitive. Just so everyone listening really can get a grasp on this and just how important information theory has been to the sorts of technology that we almost take for granted these days. Like, where would we be today if if it wasn't for information theory? Like, what sort of things would we potentially not have? Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really good question. Um, you know, it's one of these things that uh, it's kind of hard to say exactly because so so a good a good way to think about it is, you know, there are there are sort of like Copernicus, right? Would we have discovered at some point um, that, you know, the the uh, the earth revolves around the sun instead of the other way around? Um Yes, in time we would somebody other than Copernicus would have would have come along and found that out and you know I suspect uh the same sort of thing would happen and we would refer to that person's name and it might be called if it was you Aaron it'd be the the, the Fifield revo- the Fifield revolution right the Copernican revolution uh we call it the Fifield revolution and we'd credit Aaron Fifield with discovering that you know in fact the earth revolves around the sun not the other way around so is it possible that someone had would have come around and discovered exactly what Shannon did 10 years after, five years after, two decades after. Yes. And there were other people in the space working around these ideas. Uh, Norbert Wiener is a famous example. And he and Shannon are actually at one point kind of in a, in a, in a sprint to get their papers out because Shannon ha- uh, Wiener has many of these same ideas. There are some important differences that we go into in the book, but he is also working in these fields. Shannon also had a couple of important predecessors who began the process of quantifying uh, information, turning it from this idea into this sort of very hard science. So do we, do I think that eventually somebody would have figured this out? Yes. I will say that I think Shannon's work in a way uh, gave engineers the practical tools to bring many of the technologies we have to pass more quickly. Um, so the, the, well, the codes that Shannon comes up with are really not used at the time. Because remember, he's doing this in 1948. So the world is still analog. Computers are still the size of rooms. Nobody has phone. I mean, nobody has an iPhone. I mean, it's the satellites don't exist. All that. Um, what what the first time his codes are used is in the 1980s, and so the question is, would that have happened eventually? Probably, but maybe it would have been the 1990s when those codes are first used instead of the 1980s. Um, but after his work comes into use, it's basically the the gold standard, uh, and it's used for all kinds of engineering applications. And many people who follow Shannon take his work and develop it further. And there are a lot of famous technologists and technologies that people sort of that build and grow from that. 
I, I think uh, I'll offer a couple more thoughts because I know this is a little bit all over the place because I think it's just a hard question to answer, right? It is like saying like, well, if Charles Darwin hadn't been around, would we have, you know, we would we have, when would we have discovered evolution? I think that there are certain discoveries that can seem trivial, but they're only trivial after the fact, right? So they're only trivial once someone's come around and done them. And then it's like, oh, of course, of course evolution exists. Oh, I mean, I, I know it's still debated today, but let's just, for the sake of argument, just accept certain premises. Um, well, of course it exists. And so you, you've got this situation in which it's like, well, of course information is transmitted this way. And of course bits can be used to quantify information. Um, but I think it's one of those things where you can only say, of course, because someone like Claude Shannon spent 10 years writing this 77 page paper that essentially defined this field. Uh, and what that field leads to is our ability to have this call over Skype while you are in Australia and I am here, uh, because the, the, the messages that you're sending and that I'm sending are able to be, uh, encoded and compressed and transmitted. Um, and yes, there are other people who developed Skype and the laptops you and I are talking on and the microphones we're using, but the underlying architecture for how that communication happens, uh, belongs to Claude Shannon. Yeah. Yeah. Now, is it true that Shannon almost, I don't know what the right word is, but like almost discarded the idea after a while, like he, as you described, he kind of dropped this bomb. He's responsible for uh, come introducing information theory. But after like a few years, he kind of stopped working on it or kind of left it for other people to develop the idea further. Is there some truth to that? There is. I don't think it's as true as people think, uh, but there is definitely some truth to it. So, you know, one of the things to get back, this actually is a good, good sort of, you know, gets us back to where we started, which is Shannon was somebody who picked things up, did them to whatever satisfaction he thought was necessary and then moved on. And in the same way, information theory kind of became like that. Um, he could have traded on information theory and just became an information theorist whole hog for the rest of his life. But he had a lot of other things that, that interested him and he wanted to pursue them. And so he did. And so what happens is once he publishes the paper, he does write a lot for the next decade and decade and a half. And he, he co-authors papers uh, with people like Bob Fano and Bob Gallagher, who are kind of two of his, his acolytes who, who end up picking up the mantle where he leaves it. But he's not, there, there comes a point when he's, he's a professor at MIT and we spoke to a lot of people who were there and they basically said like, he was supposed to be this kind of world-class information theorist who was going to help our department get to its next great level. And then it turns out like he'd kind of lost interest in it and just didn't want to participate in that. And I think part of it is that he had found other interests. He became interested in juggling and in chess and in AI and in computers. And so he just, his interest moved on. And so there is some truth to it. Now, the thing I would object to, people will say things like, well, after 1948, he doesn't do anything significant on information theory. And I don't think that's true because we do have a record and some decent both published and unpublished papers in the field uh, that do contribute to the body of knowledge. But probably the most important thing he did was he published this paper that led all of these other very intelligent people into this field who then developed the things and took it further. Um, so I do think there's some truth to it, but I'm not sure that I'd go as far as some people have. Okay. Okay. Got it. Let's speak a little bit about Claude Shannon's interest in the stock market. So, at what point did, did Shannon actually turn his attention to investing? 
Right. So there's there's some dispute about it, but as best as we can tell, it, ha- it starts in the kind of 1960s and the 1970s. Um, and actually, it's important to correct the record on on one thing, which is people think that like this brilliant mathematician picked up the Wall Street Journal and came up with all these theories and, and made a lot of money. And it's actually not Claude Shannon who becomes first interested in the stock market. It's his wife, his second wife, Betty Shannon. And Betty is this kind of extraordinary figure who deserves a lot more credit than she's gotten. Uh, and I, I hope the book starts to correct some of that. I hate to say this, but she passed away just three three months ago, three or four months ago before the book was published. Um, but we managed to secure an interview with her before she died. And, um, and one of the things that both she and her daughter talk about is how the stock market actually was not an interest of his until his wife becomes intrigued by it. And so they start buying books. They buy Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. They buy books by, you know, people like Benjamin Graham. They buy all these, uh, <laughs> there's this, there's a title. Of, I haven't read this, this book, but there's a title of a book I thought was pretty funny, which is, um, why don't the client, oh, where, why don't the customers have yachts? Something like that. Um, so they, they read books like that. They become intrigued by the literature on the market. Then they start doing some early investing. They kind of day trade. Um, they play around with things and, and, and as mathematicians at, and Betty, by the way, his wife was also a trained mathematician. They kind of get intrigued for, for Shannon. The market was this extraordinary puzzle of money moving here and there. Uh, and so he just wanted to understand the puzzle in the same way that he wanted to understand how to build a computer that could play chess. So in the 1960s and seventies, they start becoming intrigued and it's in the 1970s in which he gives a few famous lectures at MIT about some of his investing theories and, and what would make sense and, and what doesn't and what's worked for him and what hasn't. Um, and you know, he, we can go into those if you like. I mean that he, he himself knows, he, he himself knows that they are exercises in kind of theoretically understanding the stock market. They're not the most practical investing strategies, but, um, the, the, the upshot of all of his work in the market is his most successful investments are instances in which he befriends somebody who is going to start a company and manages to get in on the ground floor of it. And so he gets in on the ground floor of a company called Teledyne. Um, he gets in on the ground floor of a company called Harrison Technologies that is later acquired by Hewlett Packard. So because of his role in information theory gets to know all these guys who are early Silicon Valley people. And they obviously want someone like Claude Shannon to be, you know, on the board and to own stock and all the rest. And so that's, that's how it happens for him. And and that's a lot of where his stock market wealth comes from is not necessarily active trading. It is getting it on the ground floor and then just holding on for a very long time. Right. Yeah. Cause he was very much a fundamentalist, right? Like is, is someone who's a, a very intelligent mathematician, you would kind of presume that they would be doing something uh, other than than obviously trading off or investing off fundamentals. But that was like his whole thing, wasn't it? Is is knowing the company fundamentals? It's so interesting, right? Because you you would think that he's he's this genius mathematician. He's working on all the complicated equations and everything else. And at the end of it all, like when when asked later in life, kind of what. Um, you know, what sort of things do you look for in a stock or how do you pick stocks? He just says, look, you look for good management, a good product, uh, all the basics that people will tell you, people like Warren Buffett. By the end of his life, Claude Shannon sounds a lot more like Warren Buffett, um, you know, than, than, than a kind of active trader. Um, he has one, one thing that he does do, um, which is 
he he imagines a scenario that challenges what's sort of called the kind of random walk on Wall Street, right? Um, he challenges the view that there is no way to make money off of the fluctuations in a stock, right? And so what he does, is he sort of describes how if a price goes kind of up and down, uh, you can actually, through a strategy of kind of creative rebalancing of your portfolio, make money from that. Um, and then he kind of charts it out. Now, ironically, once he finishes this long lecture, everyone's paying attention. Someone asks him, well, do you use this strategy in your own investments? And his response is, no, the commissions would kill you. Um, and so it, it's um, what he basically shows is that you can use this rebalanced portfolio to create uh, less volatility than the volatility of the stock and therefore give yourself a higher return over time uh, and including a, a sort of higher risk adjusted return too. And so he does that, but then his actual investing strategy <laughs> When he and his wife are thinking about investing in KFC, they have a bunch of friends over and they buy a bunch of buckets of chicken and they eat the chicken to see if they like it. And that that's what he's thinking about. He's not plotting out uh, crazy curves and studying dips and, and all the rest. Um, but he does make an attempt to kind of harvest this this volatility to see if you can do anything with it. And his his theories now, from what I can gather, would, would, would be what people sort of call a kind of constant proportion rebalanced portfolio. Um, and the idea that you can rebalance between your cash and your investments in a way that enables you to take advantage of some volatility. Uh, there are people who have done later work on this. It's one of those classic cases where Shannon's unpublished work, if he had taken it a few steps further, probably would have given these people the insights they had later. Um, there have been market theorists that have played around with this uh, and economists who have played around with this later. But that's what he was playing around with was portfolio rebalancing as a way to basically deal with volatility. Yeah, I mean, you've got to think like when he was giving this lecture at, I think it was MIT you mentioned, uh, about this this particular strategy, which worked except for when you factored in commissions. I mean, commissions back then were extremely high. I mean, now you can get them, I mean, commissions are, are very dirt cheap, so it's possible there's probably uh, some merit to what he was saying. I mean, is that research of his, can you find that anywhere? It, well, so you can find part of it some of it in our book, we're actually going to publish, uh, and I'll share the link with you once it's live. We're going to publish a longer piece on some of his market theories and some of his trading theories. But no, it's actually, you know, one of the things about Shannon is he had so much work that he did that he just never published. And this stuff is buried in the Library of Congress. We went through 21 boxes of papers at the Library of Congress. And this is just a handful of, of notes from that lecture, an interview he gave with a couple people about it. Um, but honestly, it's, it's not, uh, it's not there. And the truth is like he himself acknowledged that part of what was happening was he was modeling a stock, which would lose its value, lose half its value on the first day, regain its value the second day, you know, then flip and reverse. And he was making money off of those changes, but those are hard things to predict. So there were some assumptions baked into his model that I'm not sure reflect kind of where, how the market actually operates. Uh, in addition to the question about, question about commissions, I will say it was at the time people believed the idea of the random walk on Wall Street. They didn't think you could make money off of volatility. And I think a lot of what we've seen 
in our time is, um, uh, let's say, how do we put this generously? People take advantage of volatility using things like high frequency trading. But, I, you know, Shannon was, there was, a, there was some thought there that he, he, you could actually challenge a conventional view. So even in this, he was unwilling to kind of accept what was the norm, uh, to say, okay, what if, what if we could find a way to re, to take people's cash as soon as the stock value went down, pour the right balance back in, you know, and he managed to, to at least plot out the idea that you could make you could make some money doing this. But no, it's not an easily accessible thing. We have a little bit about it in our books, and we have a little bit about it. It's investing in our books, um, and we're we're going to plan to publish a, a nice piece on it to to dive into it a little bit more deeply. I think the thing again to know is that like at the end of the day, the theory was what the theory was. What he was really was was a good good fundamentalist. So did he become wealthy through his his investments in the stock market? Or did he build a lot of his wealth through other things which he'd done in his life? You know, he he did become wealthy through the investments. Um, and there are, you know, some of this is legend, some of it is true, some of it is just exaggeration. But they were, they made some, part of what happened was that um, a few, I think over time, their portfolio achieved a compound interest of 24% uh, from that, over that period, which is significant. Um and part of that, though, was that it was basically three stocks that accounted and they just they, they managed to get it on the ground floor. The stocks would grow. Companies would get acquired. The values would shoot up. They would hold on for the ride. And so he had wealth. It was paper wealth. So, the, uh, you know, they, they could have sold. They could have done some things. But he was more than happy, as he put it. Uh, you know, to, he said, I'm willing to borrow on our investments if necessary, rather than sell our stocks and convert them to interest bearing instruments. Right. And so he was more than happy for a variety of tax and other reasons to just use that. The Shannons were also not very lavish people. Um, they purchased a nice home in a kind of community eight miles north of, of MIT, lived out their days and they, they weren't flashy people. So they didn't necessarily need all of this wealth that they had accrued. Um, but they had some, they had done pretty well through their investments, particularly in, in Teledyne. They had an investment in Motorola and there's a, in their notes in those 21 pages, there's a kind of, there's a table that he printed out of the stocks that he owned. And it has a few columns, how many shares, the purchase price, and what the price was in 1981 when he makes this table. And so, for example, with, with Motorola, you know, he has, uh, he buys these shares at a dollar 13. And when he, he's looking at the price in 1981, it's $65. Um, you know, he gets Teledyne for a dollar. And in 1981, it's at $194. And so, he's managing to kind of place these bets and get in early. But the most important thing he does is, is hold on. And it does give him some wealth, uh, toward the, toward the later part of his life. Okay. Right. Right. And that 21 pages, which has this, this printout, uh, of his stock holdings, whereabouts can we find that? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I wasn't clear that. So there, the library of Congress has 21 boxes ah, of his papers okay. <laughs> and, and the, the printout is actually just one of the pages in the, uh, in that, in that 21, in that 21 boxes. And, and it's actually kind of, kind of amazing. He, um, they were early subscribers to a stock price service, like a ticker service. And they printed this out in an Apple two, uh, like one of the earliest Apple twos, which was actually hand assembled by Steve jobs. And so they have access to all these like early technologies, they use it to print out things like stock quotes. And so there are all these like pieces of paper with stock quotes floating around the house, uh, which is what his, his daughter told us. I, you know, I, I think it's one of these things. Um, if we just take a step back to bring the conversation around full circle, 
the stock market wasn't an end in itself for Shannon. Um, he wasn't, like I said, he wasn't a flashy guy. There were stories of these kind of uncashed checks that he had. He like left money sitting in a checking account that didn't bear any interest or do anything. Um, money was a game. It was a puzzle. It was like, how do I come to understand the market? What can I use to understand the market? Uh, so he actually builds a machine that simulates money going in and out of the market. Um, so he does all these things that are just amusing to him. And the market is not this kind of it's a serious thing and as much as he's playing with live ammunition but it's also just a way for him to have fun uh and to to sort of talk about things he enjoys and so that that's kind of how how i tend to think about it is this is just another puzzle for him to understand right yeah like you said he likes the challenge of it and likes the the problem solving aspect you know, and, and another thing that he did, which was really probably the smartest thing he did, is anytime they'd make an investment, they would either try to dive very deeply into the product, like in the case of KFC and eating it, or they would try to meet the founders. So they always made an effort to use his sort of stature within the scientific community to get uh, meetings with founders to see if they liked them, to sort of kind of understand what made them tick. And that's part of what drives a lot of their investing is actually meeting these people in person, shaking their hands, uh, getting to know them, and then making investments. Um, and, you know, to the extent that like he cares about how a company is going to do their judge their their metrics weren't complicated algorithms their their metrics were what is the product like and what's the leadership like yeah very much like a, a value investing sort of approach isn't it well and they held on to the stocks for 20 plus 30 plus years so yeah it's exactly i mean it is very much like a value investing approach and there are some estimates that show that their portfolio skewed though it was was one of the best performing portfolios, uh, you know, of their, of their day, just cause they, they would get in, they would hold on. Um, he bought, he bought, I, this is like one of those that always makes you jealous. He got Hewlett Packard because he was in this, he was involved in this company, Harrison technologies, which was acquired by HP. So he gets HP at 13 cents. And in, in 1981, it's at $82. Uh, and I'm just like, oh my God, that's unbelievable. Uh, what a return. And so the, 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 the appreciation was pretty significant, but it's just, it's partly just because they would get in and then hold on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. All right, Jimmy, well, let's do one last question. I'd just like to ask you, as you know, Claude Shannon is a brilliant mind, was there anything he did in particular to try and keep a sharp mind or to help good thoughts or uh, anything like that? Like, did he have any sort of strange sleeping patterns? Did he have a strange diet? Did he uh, have a big focus on <laughs> meditation and exercise? Like, was there anything like that which he did to keep his mind active? And I, I think you know what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, what was his sort of Tim Ferriss secret? Exactly, um, Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a great question. And I, I wrote a long piece uh, with, with Rob on Medium um, called sort of 10,000 Hours with Claude Shannon, which is where we learned, we wrote kind of what we learned um, about him, kind of like how, what are the habits that you can pick apart from this, this genius? If I had to say there's a one thing that I think stands out, it's that um, he was spending a lot of time later, particularly later in life, taking things apart and putting them back together and trying to improve upon them. And so a good example is even when he's in a, in the nursing home and he's suffering from Alzheimer's is a very hard time in his life and the family's life. He actually take a, a report has it that he took apart his walker and tried to like reconstruct it and see if he could make it work a little bit better. Right. Um, and, and I think 
based on, there's a couple books about this concept that the idea that like working with your hands can help you cognitively. One is shop classes, soul craft uh, by an author named Matthew Crawford. But I really took that to heart from doing the research on this book, which is there's something really powerful about working with your hands and building things and then kind of taking things apart and trying to rebuild them, put them back together. And I think like there was an era in which, you know, people would tinker on their cars and like now, God, if I, if I, you know, try to work on my car, I'd ruin it, right? The same way that if I try to open up my, my <laughs> Mac laptop, I'd wreck it somehow, right? Um, and, and we have all these devices that are very clean and very polished and very intuitive. But I wonder if we're not missing something from that, that there's not value in kind of the shop class, like in, in building things, because I do think that cognitively it places different demands on you. In that book, Matthew Crawford talks about how he, he has this line, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it's something like he's like, I did more hard thinking in an afternoon working on motorcycles than I did in four years of getting a philosophy degree, right? Uh, and I think we have this tendency to sort of poo-poo the manual trades or sort of look down on working with your hands as something that's, you know, for other people. I think that for Claude Shannon, working with his hands is partly what led to his brilliance. And I think it kept him cognitively sharp. I think it placed demands on his brain to think about how machines were built that led to a lot of the theoretical mathematics that he did. And so I, I do think that like I look back and I say to myself, like, how am I going to incorporate that in my life? And I, I do think that, you know, there's something to that, uh, even if we can't quite pin down what it is. Sure. Yeah, that's a brilliant answer, man. That's very good. Um, and, and I just want to mention also that article that you wrote on Medium uh, is very well written and I, I really encourage everyone listening to this to read that also. So, I'll put a link to that in the show notes uh, on the website. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, it was one of these things like you do, we, we write in the article, you kind of you kind of live with these people, like they become your roommates essentially for five years. So, we had this this weird tinkering genius mathematician who was sort of kept to his own as a roommate for five years. And we like to think some of that stuff rubs off and you, you pick things up. And this, this article hopefully is a good for people who don't know him. Hopefully this article is a good introduction to who he was. Absolutely. No, I'm sure it will be. So uh, Jimmy, let me say, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. If anyone wants to find out more about the book or pick up a copy, it's called, a mind at play and I'll set up a link chatwithtraders.com slash Shannon and that'll take you directly to the book on Amazon so you can find out much more about it there. Uh, Jimmy, you're also on Twitter as well. What's your Twitter handle? Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm just at Jimmy A. Sony at Twitter and would love to hear from uh, from your your listeners and, and your audience. I'm happy to talk about Shannon, you know, uh, all day long. And and, um, you know, hopefully what I'm going to try to do, too, just to open the kimono a little on research is we're just going to start putting stuff out there. Uh, we put up a letter, uh, sorry, a, a document that he wrote called Creative Thinking, uh, which you can also find on Medium under my name. Uh, and it's it's essentially like a speech he gave on how to think more creatively. So we'll start putting that stuff out there in the stock market stuff. And I really appreciate the chance that, that you've given to share this with your, your audience. I think his story is, is amazing. I think a lot of people can learn a lot from it. So, so thank you for taking the time to do this. Uh, pleasure is all mine. This was a lot of fun. Um, do you just want to spell out your Twitter handle? Yeah. Uh, J-I-M-M-Y-A-S-O-N-I. Good stuff, man. Once again, I really appreciate you doing the podcast. Like I said, it was a lot of fun. So yeah, thanks very much. Thank you, Aaron. I really appreciate it. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. 
But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Oh, 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 oh